going to hear some banjo music uh, for the program today. Before we jump into that, I uh, want to uh, do unfinished business from yesterday. Um, we, of course, uh, did our uh, quarterly book show. That's where we compile a uh, Utah Public Radio community book list. By the way, we have that for you on our website, upr.org, arranging everything from Pride and Prejudice to Plato's Republic to uh, some uh, current uh, titles. It's always a, a great book list, and uh, you can see some great recommendations recommended by fellow uh, public radio listeners there. Um, we did have this one that came in that I hadn't uh, seen uh, before the program. This is from Art and Mary Hears, uh, great uh, UPR supporters. Uh, they say, right now, I'm really enjoying My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante. I'm not familiar with that uh, title, so I went to Amazon. Here's the uh, first uh, paragraph description. A modern masterpiece from one of Italy's most acclaimed authors. My brilliant friend is rich, intense, generous-hearted story about two friends, Elena and uh, Lila. Ferrante's inimitable style lends itself perfectly to a meticulous portrait of these two women. It's also a story of a nation and a touching meditation on the nature of friendship. The story begins in the 1950s. It's My Brilliant Friend uh, by Elena Ferrante. Thanks for that. Keep those coming. You can uh, get those to upraxis at gmail.com, or you can comment right on our website, upr.org. Uh, go to upr.org, click on Programs, then Access Utah, and you'll see that right uh, there. And uh, thanks for those. Welcome now to Axis Utah. The banjo is emblematic of American country music. It's at the core of other important musical movements, including jazz and ragtime. It played an important part in the development of many genres, such as folk, bluegrass, and rock. The instrument has been adopted by many cultures and been ingrained into many musical traditions, from mental music in the Caribbean to dance music in Ireland. Author, broadcaster, and acclaimed banjoist Bob Carlin is out with a new book, Banjo, an Illustrated History which traces the story of the instrument from its roots in West Africa to its birth in the Americas, from its coming of age in the Industrial Revolution and its place in Victorian parlors and speakeasies, through its role in the folk boom of the 50s and 60s, to its place in the hands of songwriter John Hartford and comedian Steve Martin. We're going to learn uh, the fascinating history of the banjo and hear some great music today. And we welcome in uh, Bob Carlin, who's an author, researcher, radio and record producer, one of the best-known banjoists performing today. More than 100 articles from music magazines such as Fretboard Journal and Bluegrass Unlimited, numerous books, instruction manuals, music museum catalogs, album notes to his credit. He's truly is an expert on banjo history. He writes a regular column for the Banjo Bible, Banjo Newsletter. Bob Carlin, it's a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you. You actually know something. Uh, well, I'm, re- I'm, I'm reading from your publisher, so your your publisher knows something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're, uh, you, you live in, uh, I think, North Carolina, is it? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm sorry I can't be there with you today. The last time I was out there, I actually was performing with John Hartford in Salt Lake City. Uh, oh, great. He's been gone 15 years now, and uh, so it was some time ago, but I still have some great friends around there, and you don't mind i'll shout out to uh leo and kennard over there at intermountain guitar and banjo there all right supporters of the banjo especially leo and uh we hope that uh, they're also great supporters of public radio i I hope so yes um and we do some you know we do folk and acoustic here on the weekends here on uh, utah public radio put a shout out for Mm -hmm. that um it it is a community imagine you know the banjo community 
Um, we have a secret handshake. We have a <laughs> newsletter. We've got a little pin. You know, Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I'd like to start, before we jump back into some histories, fascinating history, I want to start where I think maybe a lot of people are. Uh, with uh, maybe some stereotypes. And, of course, we'll explode okay. those and, and get some history. So let's hear one of those. And and this is not so much a stereotype as it is probably most people know this iteration of the banjo. Let's hear this uh, theme that people will immediately recognize the Beverly Hillbillies theme, I think. Come and listen to my story about a man named Jed A poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed And then one day he was shooting at some food And up to the ground come a bubbling crude Oil, that is, black gold, Texas tea Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire The kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there Said, California is a place you ought to be So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is, swimming pools, movie stars. The Beverly Hillbilly. Makes me want to immediately watch some more of the... the uh the series. Uh, I, I jumped back in a little while ago, and it's there's some very clever writing there. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's a fun series uh, to, to watch. Um, but I think a lot of people would know probably the names uh, Flat and Scruggs. Sure. Um, from or you know Earl some, Scruggs, the banjoist. Right. Uh, some virtuoso uh, uh, playing there. Uh, we'll we'll get back into uh, you know, Scruggs a little later in the program. I'm sure. Uh, let's hear another. Uh, I think a lot of people, if you say banjo. They would come back with with this. This is from the the movie Deliverance. Talk about genetic deficiencies. Isn't that pitiful. Who's picking the banjo here? So dueling banjos, and that, that became a million seller. In fact, uh, maybe th- this would be a good point for you to tell me the story. Fascinating story, but this that what you the banjoist you hear there is Eric Weisberg, I believe, right? It's, it's, yeah, that's correct. And playing in a style of Earl Scruggs. The the interesting thing about both of those is that they're a double edged sword. They promulgate stereotypes. They reinforce the stereotype of the the ignorant Southerner, right, to some degree, and attach the banjo to the South, to white 
Appalachian Southerners. But on the other hand, they introduced a lot of people to the banjo. I believe Bela Fleck learned about the banjo from hearing the themes of the Beverly Hillbillies. And they really, we need things like that. We need these little peaks of popularity that are caused by uh, uh, Beverly Hillbillies, the dueling banjos, uh, the uh, Bonnie and Clyde, the th- you know the Foggy Mountain Breakdown of Earl Scruggs is being used in that. Uh, oh brother, where art thou? Which uh, T Bone Burnett did his best to totally banish the banjo from the movie soundtrack. And in fact, there's a joke at the end when the big flood comes, you see a banjo floating along in the flood. <laughs> but uh, all it did was drive more people to the banjo. And we mm-hmm. need these things because it's so hard for even a book like mine published by a major music publisher Hal Leonard uh, to reach a mass public there's just so much what we call noise these days there's so much for people to look at and to listen to and to respond to that it's very hard to break through to it and to remind people about these parts of our musical history mm-hmm. I, I wonder what but, as you as you alluded to the banjo, means something right stands for for something and it has oh, God, has yeah. st- has stood for you know these stereotypes negative stereotypes but also positive keeps coming back what do you think the banjo stands for today i think it's 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 really emblematic of america <laughs> to one degree and it's also emblematic of honesty and of real music you know not something that's no offense to hip-hop or any of that stuff, but not something that's fabricated on a computer. And people like the Avett Brothers and even Taylor Swift and using a guitar banjo and, and the Mumford & Sons, these bands are, are not necessarily using the banjo in a traditional playing style or a traditional context, but they're using it to signal to their audience of their authenticity and they're real and they're honest, you know? It's a whole... It's a whole different thing, but it's still uh, uh, still is important. It's an important cultural symbol, and mm. and it's better that it have that symbol to me than uh, to, to have the the racist connotations that unfortunately seem to continue within the black community. Even bands like uh, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, uh, Rhiannon Giddens being the leader of that band, and also has a solo career. When they use the banjo, and they're African American, and they're trying to reclaim the instrument uh, back to its roots for several hundred, two, three hundred years ago, uh, black audiences don't come mm. because there's still this problem with uh, what the symbol means. So it would be, if we could get it away from the symbol of it being hooked up to slavery and repression and bad times and, and get it more hooked up to uh, a more modern context, that would be a good thing. How does that happen? More African American groups using it? What? How, how does that? How do? How do you pull it away from I, that? I, I, I honestly don't know. As you can, as you, ha, as you can tell by what's happening in the news. Not to get real serious on on us uh, here, but you know what's been happening in the news lately. It's a far bigger problem than a, a few lone banjo players can solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. You know, uh, but I think that uh, hopefully uh, there's. Uh, Scholars and and uh, popular musicians such as uh, Tony Trishka and uh, Steve Martin, even that 
uh, can be spokespeople for the instrument and to represent it and to show that, uh, as we do in this book, that uh, African-Americans and Africans and uh, people of color can be proud of their contributions to both this instrument and to American popular culture, and they should be given the the proper respect and uh, the credit that they deserve. Let's jump back into the the history. Uh, the The banjo has African roots. Yes, it does, and uh, primarily West African. Although there are other books currently that that show there's other African influences came over here, either in uh, some sort of a, a different form or uh, in the minds of people and and influenced music in the Caribbean, the U.S. in the early days of uh, settlement. But the retentions are from Africa, the, the skin soundboard, the short string that's played with your thumb. Uh, initially an instrument without frets. And the syncopated rhythms uh, that you find in West Africa that you don't find in Europe. Now, what do I mean by syncopation? Europeans uh, emphasize the one and the three. And with African music, the emphasis is on the... Uh, two and the four, (laughs) and often the phrase starts on the four Mm. and starts with the thumb note, which is very un-European. But what's so great is that came over here, and it combined with the beautiful melodies, the complex melodies of Europe, because African African music has beautiful melodies, but they tend to be these short, repeating phrases. So these two things combined, you have African rhythms in the right hand, which are really interesting and European melodies in the left, which are really beautiful, and the combination of the two gives you uh, the first real American musical form. We have a, a clip, I think, which can illustrate uh, some of this. Uh, this is, uh, I don't know if I pronounced this correctly, N.B. Magni? Uh, well, I some? can't pronounce it either, so okay. we're both, okay. even though I've worked with a lot of West Africans, I still can't pronounce it either, so this we're okay. This is from a recording called From Mali to America, and it's, uh, is it the Cheek Kamala Diabate and yourself, Czech, Bob Kerr? Cheek Kamala Diabate, okay. who is a, a griot, a Malian uh, music maker and a carrier of the country's long history, advisor to politicians and to royalty, who now lives in the U.S. His uh, uncle is playing guitar on this, I believe, and uh, I'm playing, a, I can't remember if I'm playing a frame banjo or a gourd banjo, I'd have to hear it. But he's playing uh, West African uh, music that's normally played on Goni, which is a West African lute, on an American, early American replica gourd banjo. Mm. So we'll hear a little of that again. Here's uh, NB Magni. Uh, we'll hear at least a, a, a couple of minutes of this. Okay. Thank you. 
there's a bit of Henbe Magni uh, from the recording yep. uh, from Mali to uh, America. Uh, so we're hearing uh, some, uh, you know, uh, cross-cultural we're hearing those, music. Especially when it goes into da 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 that's sort of the basic repeating melodic uh, statement of it and you even got to hear the guitar start to improvise a little bit over mm-hmm. the top of that but that's that's the kind of uh, sort of trance like music with the repeating phrase that that first came over and people first heard I believe from African American musicians now the th- one of the things in the book if I may uh, interject here is it's not just about the history of the, in, of the musical styles, it's the history of the instruments as well. Right. We have lots and lots and lots and lots of color pictures of various, all various periods of the development of, of the banjos, West African antecedents and American replica instruments, and uh, even a few of the original instruments from the, the mid-19th, early 19th century. And one of the things I wanted to emphasize in the book was that all of these kinds of instruments, the gourd banjos that were found early on in America, the frame instruments that arose in the 1840s, the industrialized banjo of the late 19th century, Victorian period with intense decoration of pearl and precious metals and precious stones, uh, through the master tone Gibson banjos that Earl Scruggs used, and beyond the modern takes on uh, the banjo that all of these are still being made. And in fact, uh, on that recording, uh, Shekamala and myself are playing gourd banjos modeled after historic accounts and, and historic images by Pete Ross. And uh, he's one of the primary, primary guys doing that these days. And, and there are makers making instruments currently from all these different periods. And so we juxtapose pictures of period instruments on the modern uh, influenced instruments that uh, you know come out of those periods. Beautiful photographs makes you want to pick up the instruments. Uh, uh, great illustrations. Uh, I wonder if you tell me a bit about this. Is uh, page sixteen, uh, Daniel Jata, okay. and uh, the oh Daniel, he, he became yeah, he curious is, about the instrument he his is, father played, right? Yeah, he is somebody who deserves like a Nobel Prize or something like that because of his work. He's uh, kept alive a style of music that was really dying out in in his uh, group, his ethnic group there in the Gambia. And uh, he's playing something called the Akanting, which has a lot of different names. It's a, it's a three-stringed instrument, two long and one short, played with a downstroking style like the banjo is, is was originally played here in the U.S., and uh, and it's it's probably the most banjo-like instrument that scholars have found in Africa. And so, uh, yeah, he's he's quite an amazing guy. Abandoned uh, uh, an academic career in order to build a music center, a cultural center in the Gambia, and try to encourage people to come in and keep this music alive. An illustration of you the, that you find this music all around the world. He was studying in Sweden, I believe, and. Uh, Yes, found found a, a you know a kindred spirit who helped him out. Uh, there, uh, a, a Swedish guy who was into the banjo. Yeah, Ulf Jagfors, who's uh, unfortunately is retired now. He's he, and not in the greatest of health, but he he's like most of the banjo scholarship. It's it's done by what 
the academics would call amateurs. You know, I don't have an advanced degree in banjoology or in ethnomusicology or folklore or any of these things. And most of the people that have done the real important research, Pete Ross on gourd instruments and, and Ulf, who uh, hooked up with Daniel and helped Daniel to come to the attention of American scholars and inspired the guy, uh, the late Shlomo Pesco, to uh, do all sorts of research into uh, these early banjo uh, antecedents. And, and, you know, just running all the way through the people that write about bluegrass music today, they're, they're, none of them are are academics. Uh, there is a few scattered ones like C.C. Conway at Appalachian State and uh, and a, a few others, but really most of the work on the history of this instrument have done been done by uh, what we would call amateurs. Hmm. And that's often the way, isn't it? Um, and then at no, a certain not, point, not maybe always. it becomes academic. <laughs> so what's what's held up the, the the research on the banjo then? I wonder. You mean in academia? Academic, yeah, in academia. I don't know. I guess it is. I, I guess it isn't hip in academia. Yeah. <laughs> I guess maybe I it has no to idea. be hip. Yeah. I, I have no. I, I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. because uh, the people that are drawn into academia don't have the interest in the instrument. And, and you know, ac- academic folklore and ethnomusicology has shifted quite a bit. I mean, this is a little bit of off the topic, but it used to be in the 60s and 70s the people who were drawn to this those fields and uh, were musicians or interested in playing musical instruments like the banjo and now their um, foodways and material culture and other things have become primarily what the folklorists uh, seem to follow mm. so let's uh, take that's a break just we the way it is uh, yes uh, we're talking with uh, Bob Carlin, who's an acclaimed banjoist. He's uh, out with a, a new book, fascinating book, with some wonderful illustrations. It's Banjo and Illustrated History, and uh, we're, we're getting some of the history of, uh, of this instrument, um, which uh, is not only uh, you know ingrained into uh, quote-unquote American music, but uh, it's involved in dance music in Ireland and mento music in the Caribbean. We're going to talk some mm-hmm. more about the history. Here's some more uh, great uh, music as well following this break. This is Science by the Slice. Adventurous diners of pufferfish know that the food's intoxicating tingle comes from tetrodotoxin, a potent neurotoxin that's deadly beyond small doses. North American garter snakes have evolved an amazing resistance to the lethal substance, which is found in one of their favorite meals, the California newt. USU biologist Butch Brody and his students are investigating the genetic basis for this example of co-evolution. They're exploring the genetic basis of adaptation and the molecular processes that lead to evolutionary changes. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater, now through August 6th in Logan, with 139 festival events, including concerts, classes, and performances of Peter Pan, Ragtime, and Showboat, with full orchestra. Details at utahfestival.org. 
You're some banjo music there. We're talking about the banjo. The book is Banjo, an Illustrated History. The author is Bob Carlin, who is an author, researcher, radio and record producer, one of the best-known banjoists performing uh, today. And we have him uh, for the hour. If you'd like to uh, chime in on the conversation, certainly welcome to do that at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, Bob Carl, I want to get a little more of the history here. Um, we talked about how this, uh, the instrument, uh, the ancestor of the banjo came from Africa. That instrument, I believe, is a, is a gourd cut in half? With well, the, a, African, with a... the African instruments, are some of them are gourds, some of them are wood. Okay. Body, but the early American ones seem to have, they seem to have liked gourds in, in, the, in the Americas, in the Caribbean, and in North America, but... Uh, quickly, by the 1840s, when people were trying to travel with instruments, uh, gourds require a certain amount of effort, so <laughs> it was mm. easier to figure out a way to, to use a hoop construction all, like a drum, although the banjo is not a drum, it's a lute, and to bend a piece of wood and stretch a skin over that, mm. and then attach a flat European-style neck to it. And so that's, in the 1840s, uh, where the Really, it starts to look more like what we consider to be a banjo. Okay. Now, the the, the African Americans, the slaves, would uh, have this as a part of their, uh, I guess, array of instruments, playing for themselves. Right. Also, I guess, yep. playing for for others. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure when exactly in folk culture the banjo in in black hands started to be used for white musical functions. Uh, I know that the there's a there's a real history of of black musicians slave musicians being trained to play the fiddle and to play for white dances for mm. their white masters uh, eventually obviously uh in the south for uh rural music making and rural entertainment when you had a house dance or something like that you had black musicians playing for whites it was very seldom that you'd have white musicians playing for black but definitely mm. Following that uh, example that came out of slavery, where slaves would play for the masters, then black musicians continued to play for for whites, really cha- up into the World War II era. Mm, right. Your chapter two, uh, the banjo, quote unquote, passes in white white America. Mm-hmm. As often uh, happens, mm-hmm. this music uh, passed into uh, you know white culture. Um, I want to have you talk about Joe Sweeney, uh, but I, I want to read this uh, little excerpt. This is from. Uh, page 30 of your book, Mrs. William mm-hmm. Pitzer Gills, quoted by Mrs. J.O. Cole, uh, Joe Sweeney, banjo virtuoso of Appomattox. As a child, Sweeney wanted to express his soul in music in some sort of fashion, and as he had no, had no instrument, he made one. The two Sweeney house cats, one black and the other white, were victims to his urge for expression. They mysteriously departed from this earth only uh, when the hide of the black cat appeared stretched over an old gourd frame, ornamented with hairs from the tail and mane of the old family gray mare, did the gruesome truth uh, come out. I don't know if there's yeah. truth to that, but it's very colorful. Well, and, you know, mountain people and rural people continue to make instruments in this fashion up and through the 20th century. Uh, Doc Watson uh, tells a similar story of, of his dad making him a crude banjo when he was young. And and, and uh, Roddy Moore from uh, Ferrum College from the Blue Ridge Institute there has a great collection of of various folk banjos from the 20th century that had to kind of echo this this homemade aesthetic. Mm-hmm. The, now there was, and I'm you know I'm fast forwarding a bit. There there was a banjo sure. boom, wasn't there? 
um, the post-Civil War? Yeah, the late 19th century. And the reason for that was that industrialization came in and luckily coincided for the manufacturers with the rise of the American middle class. And so you had the ability to make large numbers of instruments. And then, hmm, who do we sell these to? Well, luckily, there's this middle class with leisure time. So we want to sell to them. Well, how do we make this instrument respectable? And so I, um, so what happened was that the, um, sorry, I'm getting distracted here by, by my son. And, uh, this is, this is what always happens. Uh, well, Hold on a second here. Okay. Why don't we go to some music because oh, it looks hey, like I'm being that's a, demanded that's, to do something. Oh, okay. That's, <laughs> Sorry that's, about that. That's a great, that's a great idea. Uh, let's hear a bit of the Devil's Dream medley. There's a portion of Devil's Dream Medley. Yep. Uh, Bob Carlin, what, tell me about that, Devil's Dream Medley. <laughs> well, I apologize for being called away here. It's no matter how many times you tell your family that you're talking <laughs> on the phone, of course, you know, it takes you down a couple of notches and brings you back to reality when, you're, when your kid demands that you do something when you're, uh, well, when you're you? working. Well, and uh, I mean, I've had opportunities when my son was small. I'd be playing on stage with John Hartford. He'd wander on and tug <laughs> at my coat. Go, Dad, I need something. <laughs> that, and uh, no, no, nobody can quite demand of you like your kids, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Bless their hearts. Yeah, so, bless their hearts. Yeah. Anyway, remind me what we were talking about. Uh, so that uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about the, what we just heard there—the Devil's Dream medley. Oh, the Devil's Dream medley. Well, yeah. Uh, Bill Keith, of course, was somebody who's extremely important in carrying the banjo forward from what Earl Scruggs had done. He wrote, was the first to write down in tablature, banjo tablature form, all of what Earl played, and which led to the very important instruction manual that Scruggs did in the late 60s. He was the first northern musician to play with Bill Monroe and help the transition of Monroe from a country musician into a star of the folk revival. And uh, Bill also just, he's a musical bridge. He, he took what Earl did and added, a, I guess, a northern sensibility, I'm not sure, and incorporated a lot of different things on the banjo. And without Bill, there wouldn't have been a Bela Flack. 
Hmm. Uh, I want to just uh, go back to her saying about banjo boom post Civil War, just to sure. Oh uh, yeah, bring out. Uh, I was talking about that and <laughs> talking about the middle class and all that. Anyway, but they what they what they had to do in order to sell the banjo to the middle class was to divest its black origins, and that's the first uh, time that right. really they start saying it's a white man, Joel Sweeney, who invents the banjo, and it's very different in their uh, writings than the black music that had preceded it, mm-hmm. which I think is the first time that uh, African-Americans are made to feel ashamed of mm-hmm. their contributions. And as we open the program, that then that, at least is, for some of the African-American community, that persists. It's seen in that community, at least with some, as a white instrument. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. I was going to mention on uh, uh, page uh, 80 uh, to illustrate how, I guess, respectable the banjo had become by 1894. You have a picture uh, photograph of the Yale Banjo Club, circa 1894. Men in tuxedos, uh, yeah, some and, guitars, and banjos. Tux- probably oh, women in evening dress I, playing I, the banjo. I think as well. so. This There's some women there as well. Every college, every small uh, boarding school, every institution had uh, a banjo club. And this was a rigor, and uh, it it was really a big thing. It was a huge phenomenon. There's a there's a uh, the caption mentions a banjerine. Yes, that's not an orange banjo. Okay, uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, like the violin, they started making banjos in different sizes. Okay, and so you could fill out all the different um, voicings in a string quartet or, or an orchestra. So you had. Uh, violin-sized banjos, you had viola-sized banjos, you had cello-sized banjos, even bass-sized banjos, and then lots of little banjos on the top end that could play uh, solos in uh, very high registers. Mm. I want to get to some more of this uh, music that we have prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's uh, uh, let's hear Georgia Buck, at least a portion of this. This is from, mm-hmm. I think, a recording called Family Tradition. Joe Thompson, anything you want to say to set right. this up? Well, this is Joe was the the last of a musical family and a musical tradition of black string band music. People think that once whites took over uh, the banjo in the public eye, that blacks stopped playing it, and that's just not true. Uh, Joe uh, and his family lived in uh, the eastern part of the Piedmont of North Carolina, and uh, I was very fortunate to get to play with him and his. Uh, Cousin Odell had passed by the time this recording was made, who had been accompanying him around the world playing the banjo with him. So I got to replicate what Odell did on on this recording. Let's hear a bit of uh, Georgia Buck. This is from Family Tradition by uh, Joe Thompson. Georgia Buck is dead. The last word he said. Don't put no shawling in my bread. Thank you. 
Chuck is dead. That's what he said. Don't put no shawling in my bread. Lord George Buck is dead. That's what he said. Don't put no shawling in my bread. Georgia Buck from the recording family tradition. Right. You heard uh, Joe Thompson there. Like that, we've heard some virtuoso banjo. I think uh, at a certain point, people discovered the banjo is a great rhythm instrument. Yeah, that's right. And one thing also, I wanted to mention that we've been listening to a lot of the sound of the instrument, and you can hear the different sounds as it develops. But we're of course not being able to see the instrument, and the instrument itself is fascinating. And that's what's so great to be able to put. 350 photographs in a book is that uh, unlike uh, lots of other forms of communication, uh, a book is a marvelous place to present these high-quality images of uh, banjos and how in the late 19th century, early 20th century, they became extremely fancy and how some makers are carrying on this tradition of uh, pearl engraving and pearl carving and uh, metal engraving and and gold plating and all this sort of thing that persisted. But yeah, you're right. After after the Victorian times, the banjo changed its role and became more of a rhythm instrument for jazz bands because they found that on the early recordings uh, of the 20th century and also in performance before we had fancy uh, public address systems, amplification systems, the banjo would cut through as a rhythm instrument. And a lot of people think of the guitar as being emblematic of America, but really the guitar only came into its own once uh, complex in, uh, amplification systems came into into play, and that's when you could start to hear acoustic guitars. 
But really, before that, it was the banjo all the way. By the way, uh, um, I just want to follow up something you said earlier. You said, the, Oh, yeah. brother, where art thou? T-Bone Burnett did everything he could to not have banjo in the, <laughs> in the center. Why, why, did he, why did he want to have that goal? Because of the negative stereotypes associated, okay. I'm assuming, that, okay. that mm. the whole idea of a banjo is that it immediately becomes hillbilly, and he didn't mm. want to have that attached. Oh, it's also a just happenstance. You know, I, I have my own checkered history with <laughs> Oh Brother, where it's like, well, you're coming to the recording session tomorrow. Well, no, we're not going to need you. Well, you're coming this. No, we're not going to need you. So who knows if if uh, I didn't have a, a family that I was having to pay attention to, a young son at the time, uh, we might have had more banjo on the set. Oh, so they, invi- they, in- they invited you in uh, various times to, to come. Okay. Um, well, uh, through John Hartford, yeah. Okay. I don't know if they invited me specifically, but yeah. John wanted me there with him, and uh, it just didn't work out. Okay. Let's take various reasons. Let's take another break. When we come back, we're going to hear uh, some more music, uh, including we'll hear a little bit of uh, Steve Martin, who's become an ambassador for for the banjo in in uh, right. in uh, you know recent times. Uh, you might quote unquote serious banjo. Of course, he always had the banjo there with the white suit and the arrow through the head. Um, let's we'll hear more music and uh, talk more with acclaimed uh, banjoist Bob Carlin, who's uh, out with a new book, Banjo and Illustrated History. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Oyster Ridge Music Festival, July 29th through the 31st, just 90 minutes from Logan and Ogden in Kimmer, Wyoming. Bands include Jeremiah Tall, I Draw Slow, and the Brothers Comatose. Information is at OysterRidgeMusicFestival.com. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio, how to become a political super forecaster. It is not as straightforward as you think. There are plenty of reasons why very smart people don't ever become super forecasters, and plenty of reasons why people who know a ton about politics never become super forecasters. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We're talking about the banjo on Access Utah today. We have with us acclaimed banjoist and uh, author uh, Bob Carlin. Um, his book is Banjo and Illustrated History. Some beautiful photographs all through the book of, uh, of some great instruments, and he gives you a history of, of the banjo as well. Um, and do we have another 10 minutes left in the program uh, today? You can reach the program if you'd like to comment or have a question. UPRaccess at gmail.com is the email. The toll-free number is 1-800-826-1495. Bob Carlin, let's hear some more music. We have prepared The Man Who Wrote Home Sweet Home. Tell us about this. Well, you were just hearing bits of, of Earl Scruggs playing Home Sweet Home, and he learned it... <clears throat> I'm fairly convinced, off of a 78 record, and he mentions this record, uh, by uh, two older musicians, uh, and it's the break for the song, The Man Who Wrote Home Sweet Home Wasn't a Married Man, (laughs) that Earl emulated. And so uh, that's that's what we're going to hear. This is from North Carolina Banjo Collection. The Man Who Wrote Home Sweet Home, there's kind of some funny lyrics here, listen closely.
man gets up early in the morning, leaves his wife in bed. She lies there, the kids wakes up and cry, get up and cook some bread. Let me tell you a thing or two that a woman like that will never do. And the man that wrote the home sweet home, he never would have married man. He never had no loving wife to beat him with a frying pan. She'll meet you at the door when you're gonna come in. She'll knock you down with a rolling pin. And the man that runs the home, sweet home, he never would have married man. Man comes in at that time, hungry, and he wants to eat. Father, wife, piled up in the bed, lying there sound asleep. Guess the man that he pulled his hair, swear to the that he won't stay there. And the man that wrote the home, sweet home, he never was a married man. He never had no loving wife to greet him with a frying pan. She'll meet you at the door when you're gonna come in, she'll knock you down with a rolling pin. And the man that wrote the home, sweet home, he never was a married man. That's the man who wrote Home Sweet Home. The, the song says he never right. was a married man. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's, yeah, Mac Wolbright playing the banjo there. And Mac had been influenced, and, and the history of the music of the banjo is a back and forth between both black and white traditions and between city and country traditions. And so you've got uh, the classic banjo, three-finger guitar style of up-picking from the late 19th and early 20th century, influencing country musicians such as Mac Woolbright, who smoothed out a little bit of what they were doing, and then Earl heard Mac and came up with his own spin, which became bluegrass banjo mm-hmm. music. And then Earl Scruggs became, uh, you know, pretty mainstream. A lot of people yes. maybe well, wouldn't have yeah. had banjo music had had Earl Scruggs uh, recordings. Well, uh, Earl Scruggs and Pete Seeger, I think, are responsible for the banjo's initial popularity in the post World War II mm-hmm. modern. I was just going to bring up. Just going to bring up Pete Seeger. I want to read this. Uh, just, oh, there you uh, go. <laughs> um, so, page one eighty-two, inscription on the head of Pete Seeger's banjo. This is what it would apparently said on his banjo. This machine surrounds hate and forces it to surrender. I guess the machine yeah, refers a, to the banjo. Right, right. It's a takeoff on what Woody Guthrie had on his guitar, and uh, Pete was. Yeah, he was. He's known really as a crusader for political causes, but re- uh, but. He's also just as influential as a banjo player, partially by introducing an extended neck to the instrument for the folk era, and also because he wrote really the first post-war banjo instruction method in the late 40s, that uh, at a time when you couldn't buy a book on how to play the banjo, and in fact, it, it in its later added uh, bluegrass section, written by Pete's half-brother Mike, predates the Scruggs book of the late 60s, so it was one of the few places that you could see a little bit about how Earl Scruggs did what Earl Scruggs did. Hmm. Just have uh, about three, three or four minutes left. I, I want to sure. get to this, uh, Steve Martin. Bring it up to, you know, current days. Yep. You, you uh, recounted some of this at the beginning of the show. I want to return to that here at the end of the show. Um, sure. So I have uh, just got this off YouTube. This is just the opening bit of a of a Steve Martin 
comedy concert. Of course, he filled arenas. He was incredibly uh, popular. This is the 1970s. The white suit, arrow through the head, and he always had a had a banjo. Let's hear a little bit of this. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Tony Bennett. Nothing like professional show business. Okay, here we go. We're all ready to roll now. My name is Steve Martin. I'll be out here in just a moment, and we'll be ready to roll. I'm just a professional act in show business. I try to do a professional show wherever I am, especially on television. So what you're seeing is completely print, planned out, and rehearsed. Here we go. So here we go. Here we go. We're ready now. Here we go. Let's go. So here we go, professional acting show business. So the people at that concert probably weren't concentrating on the banjo, they concentrated on the on the humor, of course, but uh, sounds there, and, and from recent albums, uh, he's, he's a pretty good player. Yeah, and I I think that, that you'd be surprised at how many people are closet musicians or closet banjo players, and yeah, Steve, Steve definitely was for a while one of them, and it's only recently that he's let the banjo out. He, he initially started using the banjo on his shows he says because he didn't have enough material to fill a night <laughs> and it was uh, oh really filler. just filling material yeah. okay um and so we just have a, a minute left you mentioned uh you know taylor swift it's, the banjo is is still going um you know strong we hope so and we hope it will continue to we we need these things like uh, steve and his musical with edie burkell bright star we need uh roots on tv which i was very uh, honored to be asked to help with the soundtrack and play some music uh, on the soundtrack uh, written by Questlove of the uh, Jimmy Fallon's band. And uh, we need those sorts of things, the modern-day equivalents of the Beverly Hillbillies and dueling banjos and all that, to keep the banjo in people's minds and, and in front of them to keep them looking at this wonderful instrument. We will uh, leave it there. A good place to end it. Banjo and Illustrated History is the book, and it does have some some wonderful uh, photographs and illustrations of a bunch of just spectacular instruments. Uh, Bob Carlin is uh, the author. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. And I uh, hope you'll uh, join us uh, tomorrow. We have, of course, um, the Behind the Headlines, the news roundup from the Salt Lake Tribune. And uh, then on Monday, we'll have a... Uh, another episode from the series uh, Climate One. Uh, then on Tuesday, a very fun program, Where Do Fans Fit In? We uh, took this program uh, from a recent incident where uh, Warner Brothers and Paramount are suing some Star Trek fans who did a crowdfunding um, effort to make their own uh, Star Trek movie. So how much do fans own? How much do studios own? We'll talk about what it means to be a fan uh, on Tuesday. Thanks for listening today. This Week in This American Life, 
Janie was researching Girl Scout groups around the world, and she thought they were kind of a joke. Sort of unfashionable, nerdy. But then she found this one group of girls. 150 children who for four years were in this concentration camp in China. They were Girl Scouts in a concentration camp during World War II. Surprising stories from logbooks and diaries this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.